Here's the opening question. Is there a limit to God's grace? Is there a limit? Wait. Is there a point at which God says, enough, like, you, that's it. You can't be forgiven now. You know, my son died for all of these sins, all of these hurts, all of this suffering, all of this brokenness. But that, he didn't die for that. Maybe there's people, you know, the really nasty ones, people that you've tended to think are kind of beyond his reach, certain types of criminals, abusers, tyrants. Maybe some of you are thinking of an ex right now. Maybe even a sibling. Someone who betrayed you or hurt you. Maybe even someone who still does. Or, and this can be true of so many people, maybe there's times where you've placed yourself beyond God's grace. Something you've done, you've thought, that is beyond the reach of God's grace. God can't forgive that. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe an affair. Maybe there's an ugly, black, festering hatred or a persistent addiction that you just can't seem to shake. So what would you say? Is there a limit to God's grace? You know, somewhere. Somewhere. Now, I know for those of you who've been around church for a while, you're all just dying to give the right answer. Right? I know the answer. But I don't want you to jump to that too quickly. Because, you see, some of us have really suffered. Some of us have been raped. Some of us abused. Some of us have been ridiculed and put down all of our lives. Some of us have lost people because of what others have done. Others among us have been betrayed and rejected by the very people who should have cared for us, who should have nurtured us. Some of us as we reflect back, we, we were the ones who betrayed others, neglecting the ones who depended on us. And then, when you pan out and kind of look at the whole picture, you see all the ways that people, down through history and to today, people who have been used, who have been trafficked, bought and sold as commodities, people who have been massacred, whole ethnic groups who have been targeted for extinction point at which God says, that's it. You're toast. I won't cover that. So what's the answer? Is there a limit to God's grace? Well, today's Revelation passage gives us an answer. It's a, it's a bloody answer. It's a brutal answer to this difficult question. Let's see how it all works out. Let me remind you of where we are. We took last Sunday off. We looked at a behavioral covenant, uh, how we do things around here. Really important. If you missed it, please go back. Listen to that. Uh, listen to that message because it's important for our family life together, how we do things around here. And we also have bookmarks still outlining uh, our behavioral covenant. And if you didn't get one last week, please uh, take one as a reminder. But let me remind you where we are. We're in Revelation 14. It's on an insert in your bulletin. And we've been taking in now for quite a number of weeks, for a number of chapters, an epic vision of an all-out worship war. John sees the devil, who's done up like a dragon, waging war against God's people using his twin beasts. And he's trying to get the whole world, well, to worship him, but really, at the end of the day, just to not worship Jesus. 
And at the beginning of chapter 14, two weeks ago we looked at this, Jesus gave us an amazing picture of victory designed to help us stay faithful in the fight. But let's dive into today's passage. Because we're going to start by hearing some good news delivered by three angels. I invite you to read along in whatever you have there. Starting with verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel. Remember, gospel means the good news. The eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Let's stop there. Three angels bearing a powerful message of good news. Now I can hear what you're all saying right now. You're going, uh, good news? (laughs) Uh, What do you mean good news? I mean, were you reading the same thing that I was reading? Because this is what I heard. Judgment has come. Babylon, which represents Rome, has fallen, and the worshippers of the beasts are suffering in torment. This is terrible news. What are you talking about? What are you smoking? It's the kind of question you're asking right now. But let's walk through this quickly, and let's try to see what's good about this news. First, this call to worship God means there's still time for people to choose. Fear God. Give Him glory. The hour of His judgment has come. And it's going out over all the earth, it says, to each and every person, to every nation and tribe. It's this call to worship. And anyone who hears it can respond to it. It's for everyone. You know, God could just close up shop without notice. Bringing judgment on the earth without any warning. He could do that. He's God. It's His show, you know. But He doesn't do that. Because that's not who God is. It's not his character. God is good. God extends way more patience, I think we can agree, way more patience than we would, waiting way longer than you and I ever could. This call to fear God and give him glory because judgment's coming is nothing short of God's grace, giving yet again another opportunity for people of every nation Every person who's rejected him, every person who's opposed him, every person who's ran in the opposite direction, calling them to turn around, to return, to come back to worship. And God keeps sending out this good news, issuing the invitation, sending his people out over and over and over again, generation after generation, crossing boundaries, crossing ethnic lines, hurdling obstacles, 
suffering, dying to get the good news out there. Why? Because God wants people to find Jesus. God wants people to experience his grace. God wants people to come. That's God. That's grace. And that's good news. Well, that first one, I think, is fairly straightforward. But what about the announcements of these other two angels? Because, come on, they don't sound good to me. Well, the second angel announces good news, too. The doom of Babylon, which represents Rome in in the book of Revelation, is good news because it means that God will judge evil. We've talked about this before. God's promise to judge evil is very good news. It satisfies our sense of justice, something that's woven right within us as people created in the image of God, that evil can't just run rampant over people's lives, down through history, and then somehow go unanswered. We know that's wrong. Think of all the people. If you just look at Rome alone, think of all the people who've been crushed by Rome including the Christians who'd been burned alive for sport, who'd been ripped apart by animals in the Colosseums, who'd been trampled and persecuted. But also think of the many other ethnic groups who'd been subjugated and destroyed and ruined because of Rome's lust for power. Rome's doom is good news. And it's announced in advance because it's like it's already happened. God has guaranteed it. This announcement of Rome's doom would have given tremendous courage to the Christians who were currently still suffering at Rome's hands. Rome's already fallen, and though it continues to be used by the dragon to wage war against God's people, the clock is ticking on Rome's ruin. But this extends further than just Rome. This vision that we read is that wherever oppressive systems... Wicked cities and awful tyrants, beastly empires, wherever they've reared their ugly heads, God promises their demise. They won't go unanswered. They won't last. Unless, unless they repent. And that may be a surprise to you. You think, repent? Yes, because even in this announcement of doom, you know, Babylon the Great has fallen. These kingdoms are given a chance to repent. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Some of you are familiar with that story. Some of you just know it's some guy in a whale. Well, in the story of Jonah, he's given a job that he hates by God who won't let him off the hook. And he eventually goes, very reluctantly, to warn this great but vicious, terrible city, the city of Nineveh, that God was going to destroy them in 40 days, four zero days. When the king and the people heard this announcement, and there was no repent and turn, it was, you are toast in 40 days. That was the announcement. When they heard it, they took God's warning to heart. They responded in repentance, and they received grace from God. He didn't destroy them. This announcement of Rome's doom inspires the church to powerful witness, because it means that they too can give warning, and that even in the warning, Rome has a chance to repent. Well, the third announcement that the third angel gives seems the most terrible of them all. But even here, there's good news hidden in the horror. This vision presents a stark, brutal image of future judgment on anyone who worships the beast. Remember, the beast, as we detailed weeks ago, is the emperor himself. And through him, the dragon has been slaughtering God's people. What is this horrific vision saying? 
all who have aligned themselves with the beast are going to share the beast's fate. That's what this is saying. Total and complete rejection by God. Not because that's what God wanted for them, but it's because it's what they actively chose. But again, and this is so important to hear, this vision of judgment is given ahead of time. Why? For the same reasons we've already talked about. God shows people the destiny of their worship choices. He shows it to them in advance so that in seeing it, they can change who they're worshiping now. This is grace. Cruelty would be never giving the warning. This horrific vision is a grace to those who can hear it. But even though God keeps offering his grace, even though he keeps extending the timeline, even though he keeps calling and sending his people out and inviting them to come, even this offer of grace can't simply go on forever. There'll come a time when our choices will be our final choices. When your choice will place you beyond choice. But the good news hidden in the horror here is that anyone who hears can respond now. It's not too late. You can still choose. This is all grace. These three angels, as they announce, it's all grace. It's God's grace to warn. It's God's grace to call, to give another chance, to offer another opportunity. But there's an urgency here. We hear it. There's a time frame. You and I don't live forever. God will come in judgment. Now's the time to choose. That's the urgency we hear here. Do you see how we're getting closer to answering our opening question? Is there a limit to God's grace? We see God's grace willing to extend, willing to offer, willing to give opportunity after opportunity. And yet we also hear in it a warning. We see the consequences of rejection. We feel the urgency of response that God's grace is offered, but people must respond. Well, to really drive this home, John then goes on to describe a double harvest vision in the next part of, of, of the end of Revelation 14. It's the cap off, and it's meant to reveal something to us very important about Jesus. Harvesting is a common metaphor used throughout the Bible, particularly for ending or completion. And here, it, it's used throughout the scripture to refer to God bringing all of history to its intended goal particularly as he gathers his people. So let's look at the rest of this chapter and let's see how this double harvest vision helps us see God's grace and good news. Verse 14. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now remember, that's the clue. Whenever you see, especially in Revelation, but usually in most of the New Testament, whenever you see the phrase one like a son of man, it's Jesus. It's a title for Jesus. It comes directly out of Daniel 7. Jesus uses it extensively to refer to himself. We've already seen it used in Revelation to refer to Jesus. So this is Jesus here on a cloud next with a crown of gold on his head, so underscoring his kingship, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who's sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This image of harvest pictures a time when Jesus gathers all of God's people at the end. But there isn't the slightest hint of judgment in this harvest. It's quite unique. There's no chaff, there's no waste, there's no mention of weeds or fire, there's, there's no leftovers, nothing. Just Jesus gathering his peeps. That's what's going on here. But watch what comes next. 
Verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Are you feeling blessed already? Yeah. This is a different image, isn't it? Grapes trampled, blood flowing, miles long, and bridles deep, you know? What is going on here? Listen, it's important for you to know that scholars, Bible scholars, the people I trust and, you know, lead us in many of these things, are divided on how to interpret this second harvest, okay? And there's no debate that it's an image of judgment. The question is, who is being judged? That's, that's the question that scholars are divided over. And I do not normally drag you through the details in our times together Sunday morning. But today I felt like I, I better drag you through some of them. Ready for that? So one group of interpreters represented by highly respected Bible scholars, people I, I trust, say that the, the blood that's flowing is coming in this image, in this vision, from people who have rejected God and are now being judged. In other words, after the first harvest where Jesus gathers his own people, then the rest are destroyed. In that sense, uh, these harvests represent two very different harvests, one good, one bad. And so the question is that they would ask is, you know, be similar to what we've already seen, there's a warning being given asking the question, which harvest are you going to be part of? It kind of functions like the image of destruction we already saw regarding the followers of the beast. It's a, it comes as a warning. That's the first group. The second group of interpreters, also respected by, also uh, represented by highly respected uh, Bible scholars, say that this second harvest represents, listen to this, not the crushing of wicked people, but the crushing of Jesus, whose blood was shed as he took God's judgment on our behalf. In that sense, then, the second harvest enables the first harvest. It makes it possible for people to be saved. So which one is it? They're both represented well by all scholars that I trust. I think there's good arguments for both, obviously. But I have to preach this. And I'm going to tell you that I think the weight lies with the argument that it's the blood of Jesus that's flowing deep and wide. Let me take you through it. First, we're told that the grapes are cut from, quote, the earth's vine. That phrase, the earth's vine, is not random. It's used throughout the Old Testament and in the New to refer to God's people exclusively. That's what it always refers to. And here in the New Testament, you might remember that Jesus uses it to refer to himself when he called himself the true vine in John chapter 15. Jesus, the perfect son, the perfect faithful Israelite, he is the earth's vine from which the grapes are being harvested. It's his blood flowing from the wine press. That's the first point. Second, the wine press is explicitly stated as being trampled outside the city, which almost certainly refers to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross outside the city on a hill called Golgotha. In the letter to the Hebrews, 
um, an anonymous letter, a beautiful letter, Christians are told to follow Jesus outside, to embrace the disgrace of following Jesus who was disgraced. And they use the same metaphor. Listen for it. In Hebrews 13, 11 to 14, we read, that, and, and remember, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, if you're unfamiliar with it, he constantly is using how it was done in the Old Testament to compare what Jesus has done for us now, okay? Constantly uses that. So he's going to refer to some uh, Old Testament priestly stuff to make a point. It's what we read, Hebrews 13, 11 to 14. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And this is what he does with that. And so, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. What a challenge. But do you see the connection? Jesus was crushed outside the gate, outside the city. Next, to deepen this connection, the number the numbers reveal, the number in particular 1600, reveal the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. Remember, in Revelation, numbers are symbols, not statistics. And this distance of 1600 stadia represent the traditional length of Israel, the land of God's people. So first off, right out of the gate, Jesus' blood is pictured here as flowing out and covering all the land of God's people. But what's more, and I know this is going to sound a little technical, but I want you to hear it. What's more, the numbers are multiples of the number four, which in Revelation always represents either humanity or creation. Four corners of the earth, four winds, you know, that kind of stuff. Four. And the number ten, which consistently through Revelation represents completeness or totality. So four by four rep- means a lot of humanity, a lot of creation. But then ten by ten suggests it's the complete package. And we put it all together, you have a symbolic number, 1600, showing that Jesus' blood covers all people, all humanity, all of creation, totally and completely. See what's happening there? But then there's a little bit more. Because the number 1600 is also, and I'm not a math guy, you understand somebody gave me this. The number 1600 is also the product of 40 times 40 which consistently through Scripture, the number 40, represents disobedience, particularly the disobedience of God's people. So what do you have with this one number? 1,600 stadia means that Jesus' blood covers all humanity, completely covering all human disobedience, without exception, and covering it deep. And all of a sudden, this horrific bloodbath at the end of this chapter becomes the good news story of our salvation. That Jesus' blood is enough to cover everything. There's the, there's the brutal answer to our first question. Is there a limit to God's grace? Is there something that Jesus' blood can't cover? Is there a sin too great that Jesus just can't pay for that, didn't cover that, his, his crushing didn't sort of extend that far? The answer is no. That his blood is enough. That his grace is enough, that his love was enough, that it covers every sin, every tragedy, every hurt, every betrayal, 
It covers the difficulties you've experienced. It covers the things people have done to you. It covers the things you've done to others. It covers everything. His blood is enough. There's no limit to what God's grace can cover. And some of you need to hear that message today. Some of you have carried around hurt, have carried around regret. Some of you have carried around blame. Some of you have carried around bitterness and unforgiveness. And you need to see this brutal image that Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, extends and covers everything for you and for me so we can have freedom. And not only extending to us, but extending to everyone else, even the people who've wronged us. Even the people who have persecuted us. Even the people who wronged Christians down through history that his blood covers all. That's amazing. But you know what? There's actually a little bit more yet. Believe it or not, there's at least one more thing. These two harvest visions are told deliberately in parallel. Did you notice that? Each phrase is intentionally paired together, and, and it's because they want to link both of these harvests together to see that they're connected, that they're dependent. Why? I think there's a reason, this reason. To show us that the first harvest, which is taken without hint of any judgment at all, is only possible because of the second harvest, where Jesus himself lovingly took the world's judgment upon himself, passionately took our sin, taking upon himself God's rightful opposition to all that is wrong. That's what we described. That's what God's wrath is. It's not him freaking out and being petty. It's God being opposed to everything that destroys and hurts and ruins his good creation, that God is opposed to that. And Jesus says, I will take, I will take that. I will take that judgment, the judgment that we deserved. The lack of judgment in this first harvest points to the bloody judgment in the second. The image is so brutal with blood flowing deep and wide because the price Jesus paid is so great and its scope is so unlimited. Jesus did it because he loves us. He loves the world. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to be crushed like a ripe grape. That's what this is saying. To be crushed for us. Okay, so where does that leave us? Whew! I was trying to imagine how this passage would have actually empowered the Christians, the first Christians receiving this letter. It's a good question to ask as you go through Revelation, particularly as it gets a little crazy. Keep asking, how is this connecting? How is this helping these first Christians? How would this vision have helped our ancient brothers and sisters in cities like Thyatira or Philadelphia or Sardis, the ones who were receiving this first? How would this have helped them be faithful witnesses to Jesus? How is this helping us? And as I prayed about this and as I imagined it and as I wrestled with it, these are the connections I made. It really came down to one thing. That in the middle of this worship war, that we've been seeing unfold in Revelation, that we see unfold in our own lives. In the middle of this worship war, we've still got a job to do, and it is an urgent one. You see, our job as Christians, our job as the church, our job as God's people is to make God's grace known to the whole world, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And the message is this. The good news is this, that God's grace... 
is unlimited. That all sin has been covered by Jesus' blood. That no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what pain you've inflicted or endured, whatever regrets you carry, you can come. Come. And that's why we pray and that's why we witness. That's why we give. That's why we serve. That's why we're committed to helping people find and follow Jesus. We've got a job to do and it's an urgent one. But, and this is so important to hear, but as as unlimited as God's grace is, as freely as it's offered, as open and compelling and inclusive as it is, people still have to choose to receive God's grace before it's too late. It's just true. God will not force you into his love. God will not push people into his family. God will not make men worship him. His offer of grace is unlimited in scope, but it's limited in time. God's grace is unlimited in what it can cover, but it's limited in how long it's available for. Why? Because we all have a shelf life. Every one of us has an expiration date. You know it. And I know it. And we tend to think it's a ways off, but we're reminded every day that it isn't necessarily far off. However you cut it, we're all going to die. Death comes to us all. The question is, will death come before we've actually found Jesus? Every person you know, death will come for them. Will people, the people in our lives, the people in our valley, the people we work with and go to school with, will they die before they've received God's unlimited grace? This is the challenge for me. We've got a job to do to help people find and follow Jesus. But there's an urgency to this task that God's grace is unlimited, but our lives are not. And so there's the answer to our first question. Is there a limit to God's grace? The answer is no. And yes. But the only limits to God's grace are the limits that we place. The only limits to God's grace are the limits that people place. Because God wants them to respond. So let's take some action on this. There's two things I think very clearly for us this morning. First, if you yourself have not decided to follow Jesus, it's time. It's time. If you yourself have been around for a while, trying to figure it out, trying to decide, am I going to follow? Am I, I'm not sure. I want to challenge you today to respond. It's not complicated. But it does involve coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I've screwed up. And I need your grace. I'm a mess. But what I heard this morning tells me that it's okay for me to come. That your grace, your love, that Jesus' sacrifice extends even to me. Sorry for what I've done. I come to you and ask you to wash away my sin, to lead me to new life. And I want to ask, don't do this as often, but I'm going to ask you guys if there's anyone here who wants to respond to that. So out of respect for everyone, I'm going to ask if you close your eyes, bow your heads to show respect to everyone else. And I want to ask if there's anyone here today who wants to respond by saying yes to Jesus. This is for you, particularly if you've never responded before or you're not following Jesus. If you're here today and you'd like to respond, I want to pray for you. Just go ahead and raise your hand.
All right, let me pray for you. Put your hands down. All of us together, let's pray this prayer. All of us. Jesus, we are thankful for your love. And Jesus, this morning we acknowledge that we are sinners. That we've messed up. And that uh, we can't save ourselves. And so, Jesus, we are sorry. We ask that you would forgive us. That you would take away all of our sin. We ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit to come and fill us, to make us new, and to lead us into life. Jesus, we love you. We accept your forgiveness. We want to follow you. Thank you for your life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's a number of you who chose this morning to follow Jesus, and I want you to share that with a friend. Share that with me if you need to. We'd like to follow up a little further to see uh, what next steps would look like for you. I'm very excited that you would decide to follow Jesus today. That's the first action. But the second one is for, can I say it, the rest of us. If you're a follower of Jesus today, it includes those of you who just decided to follow Jesus. It includes anyone who says, I follow Jesus. Here's the challenge. We need to make his unlimited grace known by helping people find and follow Jesus. Find and follow the Jesus who was crushed for them so they can be restored and healed and forgiven. Let me ask you this as we close. Is there anything more important that you're doing this week? Is there anything more significant that you're doing next month? Is there anything that you can imagine that would be of higher priority in your life than helping people find and follow Jesus? Is there anything that outstrips, anything, any kind of priority or commitment that you have that outstrips the need for us to make God's offer of grace known to all? Is there anything that's worth more of your energy, more of your creativity, more of your intentionality, more of your time, more of your money? than actually helping people find the Jesus who loves them and follow the Jesus who wants to change their lives? Is there anything? Nope. (laughs) Nothing. So let's get on with it. As a church, as a people, people are waiting. Lives are at stake. Unlimited grace is being offered. For a limited time only. Let me pray for all of us. Jesus, we want to be the kind of church that helps people find and follow you. This morning I ask that you would take this vivid vision that we saw here at the end of Revelation 14. And that we'd be able to see through it all to see your unlimited grace extended to all. But I pray that each one of us would feel the urgency to make your unlimited grace known to people who are out there, people in our lives who are dying. 
one way or the other, people who are lost, people who don't know, people who have chose destructive paths. Lord Jesus, fill us up with your urgency to see people find and follow you. Let it be true in our lives. Let it be true in our church for the sake of this valley and your world. In your name we pray. Amen.